Welcome back, everyone. I'm here again with Dr. David Morehouse. Today, we're going to talk about the mystery of Chaco Canyon. And Dave, can you talk a little bit about the, I don't know if expedition is the right word, but there was a mission that you uh, ran uh, as part of your that special access program that was related to remote viewing that involved or resulted in an expedition to Chaco Canyon. So how did that come about and what did you learn from the experience? Well, as I understand it uh, from Ed Dames and, and Mel Riley was uh, the other teammate on this with me, <clears throat> that Ed was working uh, a concept of a target uh, and, and the program manager, Frank Gavin, was witting to this concept of the target. And the effort was to try to explore, find, and or substantiate uh, the existence of a portal uh, somewhere in uh, in the in the deserts of of south southwestern United States. Now, when you say portal, how, like how do you how do you define that? Like a portal to where, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Well, just how, how would you define that? Yeah, it, that's a fair question. An opening into something else. So, uh, like the some of the theories surrounding a black hole. You know, some theories now are the black hole consumes and swallows, and other interpretations of that now are that it consumes matter here, and energy here, uh, seen and unseen, and then ports it somewhere else. Uh, who knows? It could be the beginning of a new universe and it doing that, uh, like ours, <clears throat> since ours began from a point of singularity, Stephen Hawking was concerned and as our, uh, our was convinced rather, and as are others. So I don't know, we were, <clears throat> we were trying to determine, we we're trying to determine if we could find an opening that craft or something else came through or just find an opening uh, and try to go from that point and see once you found it if you could find it then where where would that in terms in terms of exploring it how much further would you be able to take that so, and, and who go ahead. who was the customer of this intelligence information like who was asking the question well this again was stuff that was being done inside the unit. It wasn't something it was being asked for outside the unit. Uh, as most of the off-planet work that was done, open search outwards and other stuff, it was being done to, by, for the edification of those in the unit who were doing it. Um, and it was being done to try to build a historical file and evidence of exploration out beyond the physical to access these things and to whether it was other civilizations or whether it was life forms or whether it was life forms on a craft where whether it was unseen elements of the physical universe whether it was you know, whatever uh it whatever we could stumble upon and develop uh, there had to be a correlation of data from different viewers had to be patterns established trending of data all of it done blind, nobody front loaded on this. So imagination couldn't kick in other than it normally does in a remote viewing session. But this concept was uh, to find a portal. Now to be perfectly honest about this, I'm certain that <clears throat> targeting a, the, sec, the desert Southwest, uh, and, and I'll bet that it was further defined in the concept was to discover a portal in and around uh, Abiquiu, <clears throat> New Mexico. And I'm, I'm certain that the reason for that is because in remote viewing sessions that Ed and, and Mel were doing before I actually arrived at the unit and was certified to be doing that stuff, they had, this, they had in their remote viewing sessions come upon underground caverns, which they believed uh, aliens were actually living and working in those. And that often when you would see portal openings and crap, you know, and then 
a craft appear disappear that there was a, a way in which they were using kind of dimensional openings to get from one place to the other and this wasn't saying that the earth is hollow and that there are you know aliens living inside the earth like burrows of ants uh, it was saying that there are <clears throat> there are they thought that there are not colonizations but uh, bases right like bases uh, that were subterranean just as much as they could be uh, subsurface in the ocean, right? Or in the deep mm -hmm. ocean. Uh, but this was, this was the concept of what they had been generating before I got there. That is it, does this have anything to do with like the Dolce, New Mexico? No. Okay. Uh, I think that the concept of the target, although not articulated specifically that, because <clears throat> remember, Mel and I were supposed to be working this blind and Ed was supposed to be the guy getting approval from, from uh, Fern to do it, which he did because he was bringing in and showing the results to Fern and Fern was enamored of this kind of thing. And he understood that this was, you know, off the books, not being done for a customer targeting something. So he was okay with that and always was okay with that. So in this particular instance, in, in retrospect, looking back, you know, looking at it all afterwards, after the work was done, I am convinced that Ed targeted this particular area around the Abiquiu Inn in New Mexico because there had been an authorized reconnaissance done there by him alone uh, before Mel and I were ever involved. And then it was being done there because there was a mountain that was showing up in my sessions and Mel's sessions that when this overlays were done, by overlay, I mean, you can take a clear piece of acetate and lay it down on a, lay it down over the top of somebody's sketch and copy it with a, you know, with a dry erase marker or something. And then you can lay another acetate down on another one and do a dry erase marker over the profile and do it on another one. And when you have three or even two profiles that match close enough that you can look at it and go, that's the same profile, which in this particular case, that's what happened. Now, the profile of the mountain is, is near Abiquiu and it is, and I say Abiquiu, New Mexico. And I'm looking now to try to remember the actual name of that mountain. It appears to be the mountain uh, that is past the Abiquiu Inn over the Chama River, and there's a large mountain range back there. Uh, it, it was plateaued on the top, as I recall. Uh, and there's another mountain that closely resembles that profile that I want to, I just want to say what I, what I think it is. I think it is uh, Rio Arriba County. Some, there's a mountain there near Ghost Ranch. And I know that Ghost Ranch, which is where Georgia O'Keeffe uh, has her, uh, her ranch. It's in that area, Ghost Ranch. And this mountain was in that vicinity. And I haven't told this story for a long time, but that mountain was a huge mountain in that area around the Abiquiu Lake. Uh, and I can see pictures of it here, looking from Ghost Ranch across the Abiquiu Lake, and I can see the snow caps on the mountains, but I can't see anybody naming that particular mountain right now. It's, uh, there are some unusual mountain formations there, but this was a massive mountain, big. Uh, <clears throat> and it required us to drive to it because Look, we show up, we're authorized, but Ferns lets everybody take off to go do this. We, we land, we rent a car, we drive from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Abiquiu, Mexico, New Mexico. We are housed in the Abiquiu Inn and I, we are having a beer and I'm laughing at stories that Ed is telling about his recon because in his recon, I'm looking over, he... There's a Benedictine uh, Monastery of Christ that's really near the Abiquiu Inn within several miles. <clears throat> and Ed 
in his reconnaissance goes to that monastery and he walks up to ring the door on front of the monastery and he looks down and he's standing in wet concrete so they had just troweled the concrete pad smooth and he comes up and stands in it because i don't think they get a lot of visitors to this monastery so unless they you know put a new surface on this wet concrete you could go to that monastery and see ed dames's footprints from back in the 80s right which i think would be really funny i mean i I thought that was so funny when he said it that I kind of spit beer. You know, it was like, for Pete's sake, you walked up and stepped in wet concrete. So from there at, and around the Abiquiu Inn, we went driving one night. And we went and we parked at this one spot, looking out over the lake. The monastery is to the right. The Abiquiu Inn is back to our left rear. And there's some spacing in all of this. And we see two guys standing up on the berm. And we go up there, uh, and one of them is Jacques Vallée, the author of uh, uh, yeah. uh, books, right? And I think of all the places to to bump into this guy talking about UFO stuff, and you know, it, there's Jacques Vallée uh, standing right there. Who's he standing with? He's standing here with Dr. Ron Blackburn, Blackburn, who ends up being one of my remote viewing students all the way through every level of training, and he is a He's an engineer, PhD, that works at Lawrence Livermore Air Force Base. And he's standing there with uh, this, these very strange apparatus in his hands, like an antennas sticking off. Like, again, like something you would expect to see uh, in Ghostbusters or something. I mean, it just that's the imagery that comes to mind. It's like antennas sticking, something spinning, and he's got gauges and crap that he's reading. And... He doesn't know me from anybody, and I don't even know that he knows Ed, but he knows that Ed knows Jacques Vallée, and I now just met them. So we're, we're, he assumes he knows where we're from, and you know we're not shy about telling him. And he, I, I ask him, what are you doing with this? He goes, I'm, I'm measuring for anomalous activity. Like, like how? I mean, what, what, is, what is it measuring? And again, it's this thing of he's looking for intense increases in waveform expressions of of energy and and that's what he's scanning for so he's scanning both horizon and up so he's scanning like you know like this trying to see if he can catch something going by or something doing something very i think very similar to kind of what we were after which was find an opening find a portal opening i think jacques Vallée was interested in finding or seeing a vehicle again, you know, lights in the sky kind of thing. Well, we weren't really interested in that. We wanted something a little bit more dynamic. So we passed several hours with these guys. They're at the Abiquiu Inn as well. We go back, we have dinner, we talk, blah, blah. Next day, we decide that we're going to go up to the top of this mountain that we have seen. And it's a drive. So we buy, you know, we buy groceries. And we get headed that direction and we are driving up this long road and we've got a one over 50,000 map and I'm the ranger. So I'm kind of navigating and I'm looking at where we're going. Mel Riley's in the back, Ed's driving. And of course there's beer in the car and everything else. Cause we're going looking for a portal. Why not? And I'm, I'm, tr you know, I'm trying to keep us where we're going on this road, going up the mountain. But it, it's hard to tell, you know, because the, the landscape is, it's hard to match the, the topography to the map, but still we're doing it. And what I'm really looking for is I want to find uh, the road or the trail that's marked on the map that takes you to the very top of the mountain. Why? Because the mountain is the profile that we, that we had all sketched in multiple sessions. So we, we assumed that that was the place we were supposed to go. There something should be perceivable if we were able to get up there to do that. So we're driving, and I think we missed the trail because it's just a trail. It's not, it's not a road, as it turns out. And we're I'm going, okay, you're gonna have to go up here and do a three-point turn and turn around. And so we start heading up the road, and old Eagle Eye Mel sitting in the back, he goes, There's two guys up there, like way up there. I mean, literally, he sees two guys like a mile and a half down the road as the road is is ascending and bending to the left, right? 
And so we drive up there because the temperature's dropping and the sun's going down and we know that it's, it's going to get cold and two guys walking up there just seems an unusual thing. So as we close on these, uh, these individuals, it becomes apparent that they're, these are Native Americans. So probably belonging to one of the tribes that's in the area. <clears throat> and as we <clears throat> roll up on them, Mel looks and says, they're armed. <laughs> Which, okay, maybe that was a bad thing or maybe it was a good thing, I don't know, but they're armed. And so there's like a pistol stuck down the front of one guy's belt uh, and the other guy's got a rifle slung over his shoulder. And yeah, it was a little disconcerting at first as we rolled up there, not because they were Indian, but because what the hell are two guys doing out here walking, you know, down the mountain kind of a thing. It just seemed unusual. <clears throat> so I'm looking around like, what will I use as a weapon? <laughs> Can I, you know, am I going to roll up some paper, hit him with a bottle something else? And then, you know, Mel gets out and does his whole, you know, yatahe thing to them and starts talking to them about Native American kinds of stuff. And they are immediately connected with him. Smiles come across their faces. Sigh of relief for me and Ed. And he brings the two uh, Native Americans, the two Indians come to the back and they, they jump in the back on either side of Mel. And so we're like, we have beer. And they're like, sure. And so they have a beer and we're talking and we're going like, what brings you guys up here? And they go, well, we're collecting firewood and our truck got stuck. My, you know, my ranger mind is going, that doesn't sound like two Indian guys would come up here and get stuck in their truck. So I'm, I'm constantly in this like, holy shit, I, this could get bad kind of thing. But it was perfectly okay. And, and, and Mel with them, the whole frenetic energy just kind of dropped down. He was he had that kind of power of things. And I swear to you, we didn't get turned around. We drove five, like 500 meters up the road and we were getting ready to turn around. And one of the Indians says, so guys up here looking for UFOs, aliens, that kind of stuff. I swear to you, that's what he says to us. So we all look at each other. As a matter of fact, uh, is this where we ought to go? They're like, nah, this is not the place to come. This is not the place to go. Now nah, you need to go to this other place down this road, that road, this highway, that highway. And it was city of the damned or, or dead city or eternal city. It was something like that, that, that they named. I have never been able to find it again on a map. Uh, it could be just because the ruins are insignificant enough that they're not there, but I think they would be, significant there were kivas there uh it was on the top of a of a big plateau it was clearly strategically tactically positioned where it was uh and so the next day groceries again for a long stay and uh, of course we weren't smart enough to bring rucksacks or anything so yeah it's in grocery bags so we <laughs> we pull up we park in this place that's off the road in a way and we do the same thing we did in the other place. We camouflage the, this big Cadillac that we're driving because it was the only thing we get that haul, would haul all of us in our stuff. And so we parked this Cadillac and we are pulling up tumbleweeds and piling and we make a Cadillac pile to hide it, right? From any prying eyes. So we start up this very steep escarpment because on the map, that, that settlement is there. But that is where the, the Indians told us to go. And so we start climbing. I start to get really concerned about Mel because he is a kind of a chain smoker. He's not in, in shape. Ed's in perfect shape. And Mel starts to get really pale going up. So I get Ed and us, we come over and sit with Mel until Mel's blood pressure gets back up again. And, you know, hydrated and ready to go. And then we start again. And this happens three times going up this very steep climb up to this plateau. And we're a long way away. I'm, I'm thinking if, you know, if he goes down, this is where he'll die. Because I don't know how we would get him down off of this and get him to a hospital in time. 
And this was not in the days when you had cell phones, right? We didn't have those. So it was unnerving to say the least. And we had no radio contact with anybody, I guess, for a reason. Finally, we get to the top and we get Mel kind of back in shape and stabilized again. <clears throat> and we get up to a place uh, and our plan for the night is that we are each going to go to a kiva, one of the kivas, the round circular depression. Now, 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 just to be clear, this is a different mountain than the one you started with. This is the dead mm -hmm. city or whatever they've, they've, they called it. No, we were going up the large mountain and our Native American friend said, this is not the place to find what you're looking for. Where you want to go is this place, which was this city of the damned, ancient something, whatever it was. It, it was a pretty ominous name. Uh, and were we front loaded? Of course we were now because it's right on the map, right? <clears throat> and so we go up there and we don't know what to expect because they're kind of nondescript about what will happen there. But they said, it's a special place, you know, expect things to happen there. So getting up there, you know, our plan as we discussed it and when we were up there was we were going to build, just build a fire up at the top. And as the fire was burning with all of our supplies, we were each going to go because we found different kivas and we were going to go into these kivas, which were spiritual places. And each of us were going to do our own session. Like we were going to do a, a remote, a, an extended remote viewing session, you know, mm -hmm. no paper, just see what you experience and feel here. And so we, all of that happened. We rejoined back up around the fire and then we discussed our findings and I'll summarize. <clears throat> we felt that we saw this place as kind of a last stand for a, an element of a civilization that was not part of the Anasazi. So it was not necessarily a competing tribe, but it was, it was something that the Anasazi wanted or, or something that they had something the Anasazi wanted. As we roamed around the structure and looked at it before the sun went completely down, you could tell that this was a defensive structure. There were walls that were set up that were not walls that needed to be there. And these were walls that were 15, 20 feet high at the approaches, right? So the, the path we, or the, the route we came up, that had walls at the top, but they were shorter walls because they didn't need to be big walls. But a wall where there was like a saddle approach from another place, that had walls and one gate, one very narrow gate that was widened inside, which meant that a number could protect that narrow opening from anything trying to get there. I don't know that anybody else would actually look at that, except maybe an archaeologist and think that. But certainly, uh, from a military perspective, this was a this was like an Alamo. This was like a last stand for a people, and that was the energy that we sensed there. This was a a, a place of sorrow. It was a place of uh, finality. It was a pay, a place of you know this is it kind of a thing. Certainly it must've taken time to build the place and right to be there. So it wasn't like they ran there and then turned around and defended. It was, uh, it was just clearly that civilization there existed. How big is it? It was not big. It was maybe 400 meters long and 200 meters wide, like literally like a Masada, right? Up on a, on a plateau, <clears throat> same just an unusual sense of sorrow and fear and, you know, that came to all three of us in our work there. Front-loaded, <clears throat> yes, of course it was. I, I will always say that, which means that for us it was experiential uh, and it was anecdotal. Uh, can we tell what was real and what wasn't? No, we can't, and so we should never say that. But there were parallels and correlations in data when we did it and came back and just discussed it, that wasn't, we didn't all sit together and, you know, come up with something. We all had our experience, came back and shared it. And then made, I ended up being scribe making notes 
uh, because I was going to type this up to give to Fern when we got back. While we were there <clears throat> standing around the fire now, just looking, uh, we watched the moon go down and the moon went down right over the top of this mountain. It just disappeared as the earth rotated over the top of the big mountain because where we were, you could see the big mountain, right? You could see it there. And so watching the moon go down and now we're standing in complete darkness and we just started entertaining ourselves by like kicking the, the logs in the fire because when we kicked the logs in the fire, a billion, you know, sparks would go off and they would all float up into the sky. And it was, you know, we just kept doing that and going, look how beautiful that it's amazing. And all of a sudden Mel says, what is that? So we look over at this, he's pointing towards the mountain. So we look over at the mountain and I didn't see it. And neither did Ed because we weren't looking that direction. But Mel said something dropped down out of the sky over the top of that thing. Okay, so we stopped kicking the logs <laughs> and we paid attention looking over there. And had to be at least two hours go by. And it's starting to get to the point, well, maybe Mel saw a meteor falling out of the sky or something else. And then, you know, it happened. And there was, it was not a meteor. It was too intense, too bright, and too slow to have been a meteor because it came out of darkness and disappeared right over the top of this mountain. I had, was the compass man, so I had a lensatic compass with me, and I shot an azimuth to where that was. <clears throat> We'd already been told by our Native American friends, this mountain is not it, but this other place where you're standing is. They, I, I, part of the story was they even offered us their horses to go up there because they firmly believed in this place. And maybe they wanted to rent their horses, I don't know. So we didn't do that, we huffed it, we humped it, right? And so when we shot this azimuth, we put down on the map and we went from right where we, we were and we drew an azimuth from that point across the top of the mountain and followed that azimuth out a distance of probably 30 kilometers, maybe more. And on the map, on the 150,000s map, where that azimuth pointed was Chaco Canyon. <clears throat> so we hung around to see uh, for more hours to see would we see something again? And we did not. So the rest of the night was spent uh, just paying attention to that and looking around and seeing what would happen, and nothing happened, nothing else happened. So in the morning, as the sun was creeping up, we, we packed up all of our stuff, and we went back down. I picked a more circuitous route, so, you know, Mel didn't pogo stick down the mountain. So we, a, a, more, a more easy, you know, switchback route I made as we got down this thing, and got back to the car, unburied it from tumbleweeds, went back to the Abiquiu Inn, you know, shaved, checked out, packed our stuff, got a shower, got something to eat and got in the car and we started driving to Chaco Canyon from the Abiquiu Inn. I don't remember the exact length of the trip, but it was a while. So that distance was considerable. Anybody who wants to look on a map can figure it out. And I don't remember what the highway was that got us there, <clears throat> but we went to Chaco Canyon. And when we first got there, we, we came through, uh, you know, in that time, as I recall, there was no like control gate, but there was a, there was a gate that could be locked at night. And there were rangers, federal rangers that took care of this place. Uh, there were bathrooms and apparently there were, you know, there was a trash service. There were pads where people parked like RVs, but there weren't a lot of people there. It wasn't. You know, there were maybe three vehicles, three, three RV vehicles. So we asked the Rangers, could we stay there? And it was like, no, not, you know, you're not registered. You guys don't have tents, you know, that kind of stuff. So no, you can't hang out in here. So you're going to have to leave because we will lock the gate at sunset. And 
if you're locked in here, we'll come in here, find you and give you a, a ticket and a fine kind of thing. So don't screw us over. So we did that. We walked around, we looked at some stuff. Uh, we just kind of tried to get our bearings. It was daylight. And so not a lot went on it. And so we got the bright idea. Okay. What we need to do is drive around this place and get to the backside of it where, where we're up elevated, kind of looking down. We will be miles away, but we will be able to sit on a, on a, a hardball road. That's an asphalt road. Be on a hardball road, two-lane road, and look down. As it turns out, it was a one-lane road. But we were able to park there to the side and be able to have an observation of the entire Chaco Canyon, the Pueblo area, the everything. So we were slightly elevated. <clears throat> so we sat there for till the sun went down again. Took a long time to get around, but we were still there in daylight. Parked, sat there. We were outside the ranger-controlled area. Uh, maybe it was a back gate into there. I don't know, but it was clearly it would have been locked anyway. But we sat on this road and looked, and we were outside the vehicle. We were sitting on the hood or walking around and you know doing whatever we could do, waiting for the sun to go down. And before the sun goes down, like right at twilight, the two of us, it was myself and Ed, were looking out into the canyon, talking about just how beautiful it was and why would people come to this particular place? I mean, look around. And even 1,200 years ago, this wasn't a jungle. I mean, right? So what, why here? I mean, I know that the archaeologists speculate that they were there because of this it's a creek now or kind of a river, but that that was supposed to be a large, powerful river that, you know, that they were using to irrigate their crops, et cetera. Well, maybe so. I'm not so sure that they're supporting evidence for that at this point, uh, but that was their take on it then. Just at twilight, Ed and I see that we see this bright light moving, not slow, not moving, not moving as fast as an asteroid or something like that, a meteor rather falling. And it's again, perfectly vertical. And it comes just above the horizon. So we're contrasting it with the terrain, right? And, and it just disappears like it went into the ground. So, but there's no disturbance when it goes that way. There's not like something pops up like dust or something. So again, that's a note, that's an entry into the log that, okay, we saw that. <clears throat> we wait again and we wait again. And as it gets darker and darker, now this place begins to light up with activity. You begin to see things, these same brief notions like of light. Now these times horizontal, like into the bluff, into the side of the bluff. Or, and it's, they come out of nowhere, they're visible for a split second and into the bluff. Now, it's not gas coming up out of the ground. It's coming out of, you know, it's out of the, coming out of darkness in the air, in the atmosphere and hitting, hitting the bluff as if, as if there's like a doorway there. And then at various times during the night, there would be a light that would come on at the doorway. I don't know that it was a door. I'm just calling it that because right. what at the sur surface of the bluff on the surface of the bluff, there's a light. It comes on as a steady light. So my first thoughts are maybe it's some hiker that's there with a headlamp or something else. Right. But it doesn't move. And we have binoculars. So I pull out binoculars and it's not the light that you would see from a flashlight. If it was a light that you would see from a flashlight, it would have have to have been a flashlight that was sitting on something that was turned back to the bluff that created some glow in the bluff. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't a light turned around facing outward because you would have been able to see that in the darkness of this place. There's too much ambient dust in the air, right? In the desert like that, that you can see the direction of lights if they're you know, from the point of origin. And I was looking at it from that perspective, and it was just a glow. It was just an iridescent, like, brilliant glow, and it would be there for maybe 10 seconds, and then it would just disappear again. It would go out. 
And then the thing would happen again further down the bluff. And same process, come on for a while, then it would go up. So then this is, reaches a point where you're going, okay, so I'm, are we supposed to assume that, you know, for logic's sake, that there are that there are hikers down there and all of them are in unison or deciding you turn your light on for 10 seconds over here. Now you turn yours on over here, you know, and somebody else do something that causes a vertical flash of light. It doesn't pass the logic test. I mean, in reality, seeing something like that, that too doesn't pass the reality test. Your mind begins to work, especially if you're a logical thinker, you're a researcher, right? And you're not easily gullible about something like that. Fascinating, yeah, but you're going through the process of what could this be and why. Well, throughout the night, these things kind of happen, but one of the places that kind of draws our attention as a steady source of vertical light is this place called Pueblo Alto in the complex itself. Now, we've not been there. We don't know what it looks like or anything else, but we spend the night on this road looking and mapping. There's, I did a sketch. This area, and I I drew where I estimated we were seeing this activity going on. <clears throat> we didn't see any craft hover, you know, nothing spun around Chaco Canyon or anything like this. These were bursts of light that were, in my opinion, brief glimpses of traffic coming from one place to another, and I would submit dimensional travel coming from one dimensional. One dimension popping into our dimension, disappearing back out again into the next dimension. I don't know how to explain that from a physics perspective. I can speculate, but it's that's not worth it. You have to come to your own settlement and agreement on what these things were. So just to be clear, when you say one dimension to another dimension, do you just mean like a um, our, from our world into another world or from... Um, our dimension into a higher order, like hyperspace dimension. It doesn't, it, well, eight dimensional hyperspace is a complex topic. Uh, but assuming that we're talking about the quantum foam of space time, uh, this is one of the things that when you look at, at artists' uh, concepts of those based on what physicists or cosmologists are trying to explain to them that it may look like, you really are looking at different size, you know, bubbles. So you're looking at literally foam. That's what that looks like. But they have it, they have poor, they have like worm holes coming, coming up out of them and coming back. Some of them come up and go straight back in to the same bubble. And the bubble is expressed as it remember now, this is these are theoretical, the quantum foam of space-time. It says that that's a universe. So that is a dimension, its own dimension. And there are, sometimes they connect back to each other, to the same one. And sometimes, if not always, they connect to another. So if you had that technology and that intention to go from one dimension to another or one universe to another, <laughs> the assumption been, or the the fantasy, whatever, the imagination, whatever you want to make it would be that there's a roadmap to get there. You know, there are ways to get there without traversing across, you know, millions of light years of space. There's, it, there's a way to do that. Now I, yeah. So it's like a tunnel between a fold in space time, something like that. It, it, essentially. Yes. Quantum foam is depicted quite literally as foam. And then, they have all these little these little connectors going off, meaning it's all attached, right? It's all connected. There are ways to get from one to the other. Eight-dimensional hyperspace, if you want to, if you guys want to read about that, there's a lot out there. It'll probably, unless you're focused in that direction, I'll tell you it'll hurt your head. But uh, somebody once upon a time created a GIF, right? Of eight-dimensional hyperspace. Uh an eight-dimensional hyperspace is really talking about the holographic matrix field that I shared with you in another episode, roughly translated. But in eight-dimensional hyperspace, where all this waveform expression exists, in the GIF, you can see that you can put your cursor anywhere in that GIF. And the way hyperspace folds, 
you would be in all of those eight dimensions at one time. And it, the GIF tries to illustrate that to you. Is that how it's actually working? Nobody knows. Again, some scientist is creating that to say, okay, here's kind of what we're talking about. This eight dimensional hyperspace is folding which and back and forth, right? And it means that you are in one place, but you're in all those places. You have access to all those places at the same time. So my suspicions were growing then that this becomes like a, this is like, I don't know, like a, this is like a routing. This is, you know, like a, a place where, where journeys come and they change lanes. Like Grand Central Station, basically. Huh? What would you say? Like Grand Central Station. There you go. You know, and it's, it, it's, there's not a defined definite pattern to it, but there's clearly, there's stuff coming in and out and going in and out. And I, you know, we were putting that down as another target concept at a later date. So that night finishes. <clears throat> uh, we're tired, but we're not going to go get a, We're not going to sleep. We're going to go to our next mission. Our next mission is Pueblo Alto. go down and once again confront these rangers and ask hey can we go up to Pueblo Alto we try to like schmooze them by telling them you know we're working for the intel community we're 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 really kind of working a special project we can't explain it to you and you know as we're like half sentence the guy goes no no you can't <laughs> no I'm afraid he goes and now it's the second time I told you so no you can't stay here. I was like, okay, I guess you're just a crabby bastard. And I, maybe if I got stationed out here as a park ranger, I'd be upset too. So we leave. I think we stopped someplace and grabbed some food. And now we had to go all the way back out around to the north and then off to the east and then south again and then come west through uh, a reservation, a Native American reservation that butted up against the park. And so we do that. And again, we're driving in this car. I'm surprised it was so washboard and dusty, this fine talc dust. I'm surprised that, you know, everything in the car didn't just like shake off and fall on the ground. So I told you, I'm surprised the headlights didn't fall out. It was really violent. Uh, so well-made Cadillac by the time. I'm sure it wasn't by the time we turned it in. Anyway, we get there. And again, like dumbasses, we're trying to figure out what are we going to do with this big red Cadillac. So we're running around and gathering up, you know, the only thing we can find, which are tumbleweeds. They were in great supply there. And we pile tumbleweeds and make a tumbleweed mountain again on top of a red Cadillac. And we start hiking. Uh, I've got the map and the compass again. So I'm, I'm compass, I'm point man, I'm compass man, actually. And so I, I tell them as we start up, I go, I said, okay, Mel, probably best you stay over here on my right-hand side, about 20 meters. And Ed said, I got the left 20 meters, of course. What else are we going to do? There's, there, I'm in the middle because <laughs> I'm following a compass azimuth to the top. So as we start walking to the top, we get a good five, six, maybe 700 meters up on this route it's a ways it's easily it's it's easily 1.5 to 1.7 kilometers to get where we need to go so we're moving and it's tough to keep everybody online because i wanted to be able to keep an eye on everybody i'm sure they wanted to keep an eye on me we didn't have any white lights we had them but we weren't going to use them because we wanted to navigate and by starlight to get up there so we keep moving we we cross you know, the kilometer mark, and we are on our way up really into the incline now to get up to this place called Pueblo Alto, and which is supposed to be the oldest part of 
this uh, city of Chaco. And uh, as we're up, we're maybe 400 meters from the top, as I estimate. All of a sudden, my ears have that big high-pitched sound in both ears, like sometimes when you feel pressure differential or mm -hmm. something else going on in your head. Uh, but they rang for like 20 seconds. Both ears were ringing for 20 seconds, which I would have, I would have literally take, just said that, that something happened and a pressure change in my, in my head, blood supply or something. But all three of us, Mel Riley says, did you hear that as I was hearing it? And Ed Dames goes, yeah, I felt it. And then Mel Riley, after it dissipated, which is about 15, 20 seconds, Mel says, we just got scanned, which I thought, <laughs> okay, like by what? I'm thinking like, what scanned us? I'm thinking like maybe there was some electronic wire, <laughs> something or electronic, you know, uh, fence that we just passed through. And the next thing we're going to see are rangers coming down the hill with red filter flashlights, right? on horses to arrest us and haul us away for trying to sneak into the park. And we keep on walking. Okay. Okay. Let's go. So we keep walking and I'm still compass man. And we're walking on and we get another 20 yards up there, you know, or so. And the exact same thing happens again. All three of us hear and feel this ring in our ears. And Mel turns around again and goes, okay, second scan. Wonder what the third's going to be. And we just keep walking up to uh, this place because what are we going to do? We're there. And we keep walking. I mean, it wasn't like it put us to our knees. It was just very noticeable, felt loud in your head, in your brain, right? And it was simultaneous with all three of us. And so we, we get up there to the top of Pueblo Alto, and we we go over and look around, and it's just a demolished ruin. I mean, clearly it was important at one time, but not now. I mean, there's really nothing. There's like a there's like three there's like three walls standing, and maybe a half petition, and then there's you know there's a about a one meter wide wall, as I recall, all you know all the way around the top of this place. So it had a wall at one time and pathways up there and that kind of stuff, but it's kind of not, it was kind of really, you know, a letdown when you got up there because I expected something more. As I recall, we couldn't even find a Kiva because we thought maybe we'd jump in that and see if something was, you know, going there, but nothing, there was nothing up there. So what we did was we, we're not going to keep looking for lights on walls and lights going down in the center of the canyon. We were convinced that we had seen, when we mapped it, that we had seen activity above us. I mean, when we were way miles and miles away. Mm -hmm. So we, we lay on this wall, all of us, and we're in pretty close together. I mean, we're kind of feet to head, you know, as we're laying on it. All of us are facing the same direction. We're all looking up. And we're just kind of talking, Mel smoking a cigarette, of course, and we are just looking up in the sky. And all of a sudden, we, after several hours, all of a sudden, it, oh, something happens in the sky above us. And the best scale I can give you would be if you were laying on your back and looking at an opening on your hands like that and how that would be in relation to the sky in terms of a diameter, that was the best scale I could get. So I immediately put my hands out and looked, tried to look at this thing with straight arms and it filled the opening that I had. It didn't fill over, but it, so I was pretty close. And what it looked like was like cellophane and above us cellophane, because all of the all of the starlight behind it was being distorted. And it was, you know, the, the lights were like twinkling and carrying on. It was, but everything within the field of that looking like cellophane. So we immediately thought, 
in our analysis because it was there for several minutes and then it just like collapsed, right? Just, it just dissipated again. So we thought, well, that's, that's unusual. And I, I know that Ed knows, I don't know that Mel knows, but I know what atmospheric phenomenon looks like. And that's not one of the manifestations of atmospheric phenomena. Uh, to be stationary over a particular place and to stay that way for 10 minutes or more before it dissipates. So we stayed to see if we could see it again. And it was probably again, two and a half, three hours later, it opened again. So it, it began, the cellophane was above us and the starlight was bent in exactly the same place where we were before, which is unusual because the earth would have been turning. Yeah. So you yeah. would have expected it to be over there. Instead, it was in exactly the same place. I, I can't even you know, imagine how that could happen, but it was three and a half hours or three, two and a half, three hours later. It opened again for another 10, maybe 15 minutes in a stationary place. And then it, it, it just, just it collapsed again and went away. We stayed there the rest of the night, occasionally always somebody on the wall looking up and the rest of the guys would get a break, get up, walk around, see what they could find in the area and coming back again and change places. And we did that till sunrise when we thought we better hightail it out of there before, you know, the ranger might see us or somebody else might see us and we'd be in handcuffs. So we make our way back down. We don't get scanned on the way down. We make our way back down. We unbury our car and we hightail it out of the area and we go find some crappy little hotel somewhere where I think I spent most of the day killing cockroaches or something. And I can't remember where it was, but and, and eating Mexican food, which we needed and we needed a shower and we needed some rest. And we did <clears throat> long enough for it to start to get, you know, we wanted to go back up again that last night. And so we did the same pathway out, the same pathway up. We were not scanned again going up. And this night when we were up there, the, this, this thing, whatever it is, this activity opened above us. But this night it opened three times, about two, two and a half hours apart in almost even sequence. It stayed open somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 minutes, uh, plus or minus a minute or two. And it would stay there for that amount of time and then it would close again. Two and a half hours later, open up 15 minutes, give or take, close. And then again, and then nothing for the rest of the night. So we go back down again <clears throat> and we are done now at this point. We compile our notes, we get back to Albuquerque, we get on the airplane, we fly back. When we fly back, you know, we do our memory sketches and all the stuff, marking on the map, things we saw, transposing my sketch onto the map, that kind of stuff. And we hand all of this in to, to Fern. Now, I said at the beginning of this, of this story that there was no customer. However, within 12 to 18 months, there showed up out there these, and I, I don't remember who did it, and I'm sure you guys can probably look it up, but some company like a DynCore or, I mean, something, a big company showed up out there with all of these white uh like reefer trucks, you know, that, that, that they pulled in there and started pulling up, you know, satellite dishes and all these other things. And they were there for a, a, a large amount of time, as I recall. And what they were doing was looking and measuring and tracking and figuring that all out. They were not there to pick up rocks or look for Anasazi pottery shards. They were a research element that was there <clears throat> looking and waiting and listening for something. 
And I, you know, it wasn't guys in black suits. It was, you know, this, these were guys in, as I re recall reading it and hearing about it, these were guys out there in hard hats and other things, but they were not looking for oil. They, everything was pointed up and to the side. They were looking, listening, feeling for what they got. What ultimately came out of all of that, uh, I don't know. It uh, wasn't too many months after that that, that uh, Ed left the unit. Uh, and after Ed left the unit, it was probably six months after that, I left the unit. But what was unusual was to see that happen after what we did and what we turned in, which was supposedly nothing. You know, it was just to be added to the historical record. So are there things in a special access program that people in the special access program don't know about yeah that's how special access programs operate that's a that's how they stay alive and how they keep doing what they're doing even if something happens in that program like if it folds up that mission continues and other elements can blossom and be used so something got reported to somebody and it was significant enough that somebody contracted somebody to go out there and check it so i and i don't know what they came up with nor would we ever that's not something they would come back with and you know put in scientific american or ufo magazine or something like that but there is a reason that an ancient peoples put that that dwelling there and there is a reason why it's kiva heavy there's a reason why uh it it was perfectly laid out it was perfectly laid out in terms of you know the sun's track and the moon's track and, and the soul says this and all of these things there was an there was a, a divine engineering that took place in this and it wasn't because they were enamored of watching the moon track from over the top of one place to the other that would just be preposterous and first of all these were Based on what they're saying they were as Anasazi, how the hell do you think they laid something out like that? They weren't surveyors. You know, how do you lay something out that's miles apart, that's perfectly in alignment, perfectly? How do you do that? I mean, run a hemp string that far across. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous to think that or to say that, right? There has to be some reason why that was created there. And I'm convinced that based on my experience of being there and the things that I've seen. And I became a student of Chaco Canyon, you know, in the years, the decades that followed. And it seems like every time there's more exploration, like the, the, the archeologists said they just left the place, they went away. Well, why now in, in digging through trash mounds, why are they finding human bones? Human bones that clearly were cannibalized because of the saw cuts and knife cuts on them, et cetera. Uh, something went very dark there. And the, the, the indigenous peoples of that area who are connected to that tribe say that that tribe became so powerful. This is their legend. And you tell me where there's an equal legend talking about Native Americans anywhere in the U.S., they became so powerful that they controlled the weather. True? I don't know. Not true? I don't know that either. I mean, yeah, the, the legends get interpreted slightly, but I haven't heard any legends of, you know, the Navajo controlling the weather or, you know, uh, Seminole tribe controlling the weather or anything else. But to have this dark, station you know to say the peoples here became so powerful and the inference there is became so evil uh, that they began to control they were able to control the weather and clearly now and and they're looking at it and they even warred against and can cannibalized you know their those they conquered which now piecing that knowledge which gets more elaborate as each decade goes by, piecing that awareness with what we perceived in the city of the damned or whatever that other place was, right? 
that it was we're holding up here and we're keeping the oppressor out of this place for as long as we can. That made sense now, right? The dots got connected. And the fact that these Native Americans that got us on the big mountain told us to go here, something will be important up here for you. And then we see that drop down over the top of the mountain, shoot an asthma, and it brings us to Chaco Canyon. Yeah. And that's the Chaco Canyon story. Did you get any pictures of the portals or anything? No. No, you would, I would have had to. Uh, we didn't have cameras like we have in cell phones now. We didn't have anything like that. We would have had to have brought, you know, camera gear out there. And none of us knew how to use camera gear like that. I mean, I wish we had, right? I wish I'd yeah. been able to snap something, but no. And I assume that that's what those research vans, of which I, I, as I re memory recalls, and I remember folks, this is a long time ago for me. Uh, it's over 40 years, really. So you're looking at that and going, you know, it, they were probably recording and capturing with cameras. That's what they were there for. They were trying to do that. But, you know, three yahoos out of a remote viewing unit stumbling around in the dark. Uh, yeah, we didn't have camera gear like that. None of us did. And even if somebody had handed it to us, we would not have known how to use it. And in those days, it wasn't point and shoot. You know, it just wasn't. So, yeah, I wish we had had photographic evidence of that stuff. Instead, all we had was our sketches, you know, to support that. Now, I've told that story many times over the years, and it gets, uh, as I get older, it gets more challenging and more challenging to remember all of the pieces of it. And I'm sure I probably left some of the funny anecdotes out of it because, I know we were doing some funny stuff. We we all, the three of us really liked each other. So we did stupid stuff like you know, break a branch off and stick it, but you know, in your shirt behind you. So it looked like you had antlers and, you know, then start howling up. So somebody would look up and see the, sh the silhouette of like this alien with antlers stuff. And of course we would just all yuck and laugh and rock get thrown at you or something else. Uh, those were good times. Those were times in that unit that I remember that was a camaraderie you know, shared. And at that time, those, both those men were extraordinarily good friends and they were good people. You know, they really were. This is before one became Dr. Doom you know, and, and so forth. Uh, but still, I, you know, that guy's a smart guy and I'm sure he's doing what he's doing because it gets a rise out of people. And I guess that's important in some circles, but those were good times and those were good memories. And I'll never forget, you know, I'll never forget the friendship that bounded us together, you know, to, to lay on a wall and look up and, and watch the sky open, you know, like something, I just wish something had come through it, through it. I had no desire to, you know, meet something. I just would have liked to have seen a passage, right. Something. Right. Trans and, uh, it, and, and years past, I was starting to think it was kind of like, it was kind of like, a, this, you know, a stoplight changing with nothing at the four-way stop. Do you know what I mean? It's like it opens. And if you're here at this time, it, it opens and it, it's green. Great. If not, it closes. And if there's no traffic, it just is that. The light still cycles, even though there's no traffic. So it was a fascinating place. Uh, are there any books? people should check out about Chaco Canyon you know there, there are probably more books than you would want to read in a lifetime but yeah there's also some documentaries out there on Chaco Canyon one of them Robert Redford narrates because he's okay enamored of the place as well I think that's available on Prime on on Amazon Prime uh, that's usually where that kind of stuff shows up you really can't find that kind of documentary on Netflix or HBO they're not interested they're more interested in spinning up social issues in most of their stuff uh, or do, showing what life in prison's like, you know, for people, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? You're like, oh, people really want to watch this. I guess they do. So if you put that in your consciousness, you may end up in prison. Anyway, I'm just joking about that. But Amazon Prime carries a lot of that yeah. kind of odd stuff. And I, I know there's a Chaco Canyon documentary out there. I haven't watched it, but I know it's there. But if you watch it, I'm sure it puts in there all the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Um, 
and it, it's a fascinating place. If you ever get the chance to go, go. And if you go, try to go after it rains. And if it go after it rains, I don't care what the rangers say, look down at your feet because there will be pottery shards there. And I, I have, I have probably 50 of them sitting in a bowl right over there that I've had with me since that day, you know? Thank you for sharing that story. It was amazing. I, I, I didn't even know that uh, that was in your repertoire. I, I didn't know you guys went and did like I, a field work. I've done it on like a podcast like you, but I'm, I am happy that you're the guy that's going to, it's going to post it. So. All right, my friend. Um, we'll definitely, we'll definitely have you on again at some point, because I know you still have a yeah. ton of stories. It's a good, so clearly a good interviewer and, and good camaraderie and energy there. So anytime I can help Sean, thank you to all your viewers. You guys have fun with that story. I'm sure. People will be talking tonight. Uh, so anyway, all right. All right. Thanks, Sean. See ya. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.